Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest has a very interesting bio. Hannah Stotland flunked out of high school, got a GED, and went on to graduate not just from college, but from Harvard College and Harvard Law School. Since 1999, she's been an independent admissions consultant, really specializing in educational crisis management, including Title IX, substance use disorders, and mental illness. She frequently presents at professional conferences and also has been featured in the New York Times, Newsweek, CBS News, PBS, and WNYC. Welcome, Hannah. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. So can you just give us a little bit of color to that bio? <laughs> so after I flunked out of high school, my parents said I could only keep living in their house if I got a GED and a job. So that's what I did. And I spent two years working at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago and uh, worked my way up from being a guide to being an Omnimax projectionist. And along the way, decided that I wanted to go to college, but I had no idea if any four-year school would take me. Um, eventually managed to get into a small women's college in Pennsylvania. Went there and found out that I didn't like being at a small women's college, but that I was really good at college. Started making A's there, um, being very involved in campus and tried to transfer out after my freshman year, was denied everywhere I applied. But after two years there, I got into Harvard, Stanford, and Penn as a junior transfer. So I went off to Harvard, and after going through the admissions process three years in a row for myself, I got very interested in it, and I got a tour guide job at the admissions office. And there's a little spot in the script where you say, and this is what brought me to Harvard. <laughs> and I would tell a short version of this story and I would get a lot of surprise. And so almost right away after every tour, some family would say, you have to talk to my nephew. He just got out of rehab and he wants to go to college. Can you help us? And before I knew it, I, I almost, uh, almost to my surprise, had a small counseling practice where families heard what I had done and wanted me to talk, the, talk to their kids. So and I stayed so at Harvard Law School, but I was always doing this on the side through my legal career. And do you still practice law or is that in the rear view at this point? It's in the rear view mirror. So I, I haven't practiced law since 2008. And uh, I've been solely, I was doing this on the side for a while. And uh, then since, uh, since 2013, uh, my, all of my work has been uh, supporting my own clients privately. Wow, that's a great story of, you know, real resilience, getting up, falling down, trying again, trying yet again. I love that. So, and it makes sense why people would want to use your services because you have lifted. You've lifted. Can you give us a That's little bit of, yeah. 
Can you give us a little more um, detail about what kinds of crises people bring to you? So it's it's shifted over the years. I've always seen whatever is interrupting young people's journeys, I see. So from the beginning, I've seen lots of mental illness, um, lots, lots of substance abuse and students in recovery. Um, particularly, I see eating disorders and I see um, depression and anxiety. And I've always seen uh, substance abuse of various kinds. I've had lots of kids who were in disciplinary trouble, either in uh, high school or in college, kids who were uh, suspended or expelled for any number of reasons. Um, I've seen every kind of uh, uh, criminal matter as well. Um, and it, the disciplinary cases are just extremely varied. I see lots of accusations of sexual misconduct as well as survivors of sexual misconduct. And I've, I've I've seen a couple of cases in my career of student government election fraud, um, of uh, all kinds of students who had um, pulled fire alarms to, to uh, prevent having to take an exam, um, students who are accused of academic misconduct of every, every kind at the high school and college level. So I just see an extremely varied uh, kind of, um, I would say, menu of uh, struggles that young people go through. So this, this podcast, by and large, is designed for advisors and um, lawyers and other people who serve families of high net worth, by and large. When would somebody contact you from that socio-demographic? When would that happen? So there's there's a couple of times when it happens. Um, it what's easiest for me is if families call me often when there is a recovery arc happening. You know, the student is in rehab, um, the student has come home from college after the suspension or expulsion, and they're working through. Um, you know, they, they, they've often had a, a, an eye-opening experience where there's a different level of insight than there was before the crisis. And so very often those families come when the recovery story is underway. Um, but it does happen that they come to me earlier and very frequently if there is, like a student is just now gonna go to treatment. Um, usually that's too early for me to start working on college applications or grad school applications with them. Um, but frequently I can be useful for, for one important visit at that early stage. So where um, the student may feel, well, now I've blown it, now it's over. And sometimes they are um, reluctant to start treatment for the mental illness or the substance use disorder um, because they feel there's no hope. And so very frequently I'll come in um, at that stage for one meeting to say, look, when you're in recovery, when, when you've got your feet under you again, here's what we're gonna be able to do. And here's the success that so many students in your position have been able to achieve and so often I'm collaborating with the treatment team at that time to reassure the student. It is really difficult, especially, um, especially for families that can pay. It is really difficult to ruin your educational prospects in the US. Um, it, it, it can be done, but pretty much you need to be in prison or be adjudicated a sex offender before I can say, you know, I may not be able to um, help you solve this educational problem. Anything short of that, I can work with. 
And, and I've seen students come back from them many, many times. So all the threats that we parents have been making that you're going to make irreparable decisions when you're too young are wrong, right? They're wrong. Well, yes. They're wrong. They're wrong looking at the big picture, looking at the short term. You can cause yourself a world of hurt in the short and middle term and make your educational process immensely more difficult and complicated and lengthy, right? Mm -hmm. So my, uh, uh, I often say, you know, there's no asterisk on my Harvard degree, not on either one of them. Doesn't say, well, but she flunked out of high school and got a GED and she transferred and she got her when she was 22, right? None of that. It says class of 99. What it doesn't say is class of 97, which is what uh, my high school classmates, uh, uh, college diploma seat. And, and, and it cost me two of the four years at Harvard that I might have been able to earn had I not gone off the rails in high school. So there, there, you pay a, a pretty significant cost, even, even in the story like mine that, that, uh, kind of ends in triumph. Um, there, there are costs that you pay. But it doesn't have to be, um, well, that's it as far as education, or even that's it as far as elite education. But it is a, 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 um, a way that students are putting more burdens and more delays on themselves with those bad choices, even though they are, the consequences are usually survivable. That's a great point. That's a great point. So switching gears, you mentioned that you have managed cases with people who have sexual misconduct allegations as well as surviving sexual misconduct. Can you tease that out a little bit more for us and tell us how that comes to you? Yeah. So this was, uh, this is now the single largest group of clients that I have is those who are involved with uh, Title IX sexual misconduct allegations. I didn't see any for the first 15 years that I was a counselor. Um, I got my first two cases in January of 2014. And within the next two years, this became half my practice. So there was um, a real uh, sea change in terms of the frequency of these cases and how, how often these, uh, these students were finding me. So. Um, more of those cases are college than high school, though I do see students who were accused during high school. Um, about two thirds of the cases stem from stories that I, I would broadly describe as drunken hookup. And about one third of the accusations I'm dealing with uh, stem from, uh, by teenage standards, long-term relationships. So boyfriend, girlfriend, or, or same-sex relationships that were going on for a number of months. And um, usually there is um, very strong, and in most cases, I believe good faith disagreement about what happened or about the meaning of what happened. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a contrast with some of my other cases. So for example, my students who are caught dealing drugs out of their dorm room, usually there is no dispute about the facts there. They're usually caught red-handed. They often confess on top of being caught red-handed. And the only question is, what should the consequence be? Um, in the sexual misconduct cases, that's usually not the case. And um, most of the time, the students have uh, lawyers as well as uh, myself as an educational consultant and sometimes as an expert witness to um, the legal proceeding. And uh, I, I see every combination. I've had many students um, 
About 10% of my cases, as, as you would imagine, involve same-sex accusations. Um, I've had uh, uh, conflicts involving uh, non-binary students um, and a number of cases where um, there were mutual accusations um, and where uh, the students are, are both complainants and respondents. So that so um, I've I've had some students who um, were accused of wrongdoing in the midst of an encounter in which they feel they were raped. A lot of gray and a lot of complexity in what I see. And and most of the cases, and I've had about 230 uh, Title IX cases in the last eight years, so it's it's really a significant number. Um, that so many of these cases um, just involve, um, you know, it, it's impossible for me to know um, whether my whether my the story that my student is telling me comports with what I how I would interpret the facts had I been in the room, um, but I wasn't in the room. And many of these cases are it, it's not just that the facts are unknown, but they are unknowable. Right. It, how can we quantify how drunk someone was at a particular hour um, after a party six months ago? It's very, very difficult to do. Usually there's only two people in the room. Um, and these are things that are that are difficult to quantify um, in the best of circumstances. Right. Most of the time we don't where people aren't being breathalyzed. Uh, you know, in, in the moment. And um, thus, there are a lot of these cases where not only the matter, uh, you know, that the, the evidence is not clear enough to tell us, uh, con uh, confirm what must have happened, um, but more than that, there, there cannot be such evidence in some of these cases, and, and we will not know um, uh, how how the truth combined the perspective of the people there, as I, I usually don't think uh, in, in any case that that either flawed uh, juvenile often intoxicated human memory is, that anybody there is is recording a, a, a reliable transcript of what happened. I'm sure. So I have two questions that come out of that. One is how often just make a guess, is alcohol involved in these allegations? Uh, my About 90% of these cases involve um, intoxication in my practice and by far the largest uh, uh, contributor to that is alcohol. There's, you know, maybe uh, there are other drugs frequently as a, as a perhaps as an addition um, but but alcohol lies at the root of of um, you know probably close to ninety percent of what I see. That makes sense. That that resonates with my experience with youth mm -hmm. as well. So then I have to ask. Let's imagine that my son. No, I'm going to imagine somebody else's son because I don't want to go here. Is. Um, been involved in one of these situations, alcohol was involved, and he and a lover have a difference of opinion as to how the sexual encounter went down. How do you rehabilitate somebody with that kind of allegation hanging over their head? Well, I tell my students uh, uh, right away they need lawyers. So uh, I, I can I can be helpful, but they, the first thing they need uh, 
if there's a prospect of either school or criminal discipline, um, they, they need to get lawyers. Um, how we rehabilitate that, let's assume that there is a finding of responsibility against that student and that they are either expelled or given a lengthy suspension. I mean, most the most common consequence um, that I see for students who are found responsible for sexual assault in a, in a college, the most common consequence is a suspension until the accuser graduates, you know, which could be anywhere from one to three and a half years. Um, in that situation then, um, I'm encouraging the student first, usually to take a break. Um, I'm usually not enthusiastic about them uh, trying to get back into college the, the, in, in the following semester. Uh, I certainly will help them if that's what they want, um, but I usually think that in these situations, some space and time is beneficial both intrinsically for that student's recovery um, and extrinsically where you wanna be able to show other institutions, um, some time has passed, look, how, look what I've done since then. Um, let me quantify my recovery for you. And I'm using the term recovery even for situations that, that might not uh, uh, involve substance abuse. But there's got to be um, some kind of recovery arc from the catastrophe. And these things don't go away, but they do shrink in the rearview mirror. And mm -hmm. thus, it, time is the friend of a student in this situation. And every semester that goes by, as long as they are um, using their time productively, which can be um, an ordinary job, you know, a, like like my job taking tickets at a museum. It can be a more sophisticated job, you know, an internship at a bank. It can be volunteer work. Um, it can be a, a traveling gap year program where you do. But as as long as you're not playing video games in the basement, uh, and you're you're using your time productively, time is the friend of a student in this situation. Um, and when we get, once there has been a little bit of a recovery story lived, it usually becomes easier than to write about it. If I have a student who is um, tackling the project of the explanation essay, right? That there's a uh, question on a college application, uh, have you ever been suspended? If so, explain here. A student who's really struggling with that question, very often they haven't lived the recovery story that they need to write about. And it's a sign that there is uh, room for them to have more experiences between the catastrophe and the present so that they have more of a story to tell. And once they have lived that, it's usually pretty straightforward to write about. And the number one principle is not to shy away from the truth. You never uh, it, it plead guilty to something that you didn't do. But if you were found responsible for sexual assault, you say in the first sentence, I was found responsible for sexual assault. If you didn't do it, there's additional things that you can say about that you know, in the content of the essay, but you need to um, head directly toward that obstacle and not show fear. And because otherwise you're signaling to the reader, number one, I haven't come to terms with this. I'm still in some kind of denial. And second, uh, you're also signaling to the reader that, that there's something here that you need to be ashamed of. 
-hmm. And so rather than do that, you want to send the message. I am owning, you know, I say man up, woman up, non-binary up, uh, just grown up up and own what happened. I love that grown up up. Yes. So what happens when the knucklehead, whatever sex or binary is in a blackout? What happens? It's difficult to um, own a event, an event, one in a blackout. Yeah. Well, it's it's just like uh, as you would perhaps in a in a DUI situation, like my some of my students have had. Um, you're responsible for the choices that you made that put you into that situation, unless you were drugged by a third party against your knowledge. Um, you made the choice to incapacitate yourself. And if in that situation you harmed yourself or others, uh, you, you do have to own that. And that is, even if you weren't consciously aware of what you're doing, you made the mistake of, of putting yourself into that state. And that is, that is the way both the law and our society work, that if you're over 18, uh, and and you are um, overusing any substance that makes you make terrible decisions, they're still your decisions. It's a tough message for kids. It's a good one and it's a tough one. So mm -hmm. for our listeners who are parents out there of emerging adults or what we call adult light sometimes, um, what piece of advice would you offer to those parents whose kids seem to be heading down a difficult path? So there are a couple of important pieces of advice. And one is, I think back to, you know, when I was in high school in the early 90s, it was, um, that was the, the prime of uh, mothers and students against drunk driving and, and uh, the idea of designated drivers and all of that was, was quite new. And it was quite effective. Um, and a big part of it uh, for, for me as a high school student was uh, we were given contracts to sign with our parents. And it was, if I don't have a, a sober ride home, uh, whether I was supposed to be the driver or someone else was, um, I can call my parents and get a safe ride home at any hour, no questions asked. And that kind of agreement in advance prevented a lot of drunk driving and thus prevented a lot of deaths. And I think something like that is very smart for parents to tell their kids is, look, um, I'm going to give you all kinds of information about how to make good choices, and I hope you do. But please know that if you go against my advice and you end up in trouble that I warned you against, please tell me and I'm going to help you. I, I can't promise that I won't be upset. Um, but if you have made a mess, please let me help you get out of it. And I see so many cases where um, there was a small problem or a medium-sized problem. The kid says, well, I don't, I don't want my parents to know that I was 
drinking, having sex, taking drugs, whatever it might be. I'm just going to handle this school discipline problem by myself. Then they end up expelled. And frequently mm -hmm. those frequently in those cases, the student had a good defense. But because the, the real adults, the non-light, full-strength adults weren't involved and they weren't able to get a lawyer and, and other kinds of professional help involved, the student inadvertently waived all their best defenses. And now there, there may be nothing we can do about what's already happened. I can still work with them going forward, um, but there can be permanent consequences to trying to handle things on their own. So if parents can try and establish enough trust with the student where they say, look, I, I can be disappointed, I can be angry, I can be sad, but I'm gonna help you. And I hope that you will reach out for that help. Great advice. Thank you, Hannah Stotland. I appreciate this half an hour. It went very fast. Um, for those of you listening or watching, you have been watching or listening Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast, and I hope you will like us on your platform of choice. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.